Hey everybody, welcome to the 109th episode of the JDO Show. I'm your host, J. David Osborne, and today on the podcast I have El Nash, the author of Animals Eat Each Other, out now from Dezank Books. I really enjoyed this one. It's a quick, very well-written read, and I was thinking to myself, it's interesting that we're starting to see books, and I mean, I guess this makes sense with just how time works, but we're starting to see books written by folks who are sort of in their early 30s about when they were in their early 20s, which was the fucking early 2000s, which is crazy to me. So we're starting to see cultural uh, cues from that period of time, which I recall very well from my own life, crop up in fiction. Uh, That is just one of the uh, many incredible insights you are going to get if you listen to the JDO show on the regular, such as, isn't it crazy that time passes, and when time passes, things become old? I always enjoy talking to L. Our conversations always go into pretty weird territory. This one is no exception. We end up going down a dark conspiracy rabbit hole that I think is a lot of fun to listen to. Once again, the book is called Animals Eat Each Other. It's out now from Dezank Books. It's gotten all kind of press. I think it was in Oprah Magazine recently. I just choked on a sun chip when I tried to say Oprah Magazine. But yeah, big book, lots of buzz, all of it well-deserved. Without further ado, please do enjoy this 109th episode of the JDO Show featuring Elle Nash. Pretty much just plop the baby, like, on you and then just get to work or what? Yeah, like, I have this baby carrier and it's really been, like, the most, like, useful thing that I've ever had because I'll wear her... And now that she has, like, normal nap schedule, she'll just kind of, like, fall asleep on me in the morning. And I can just kind of, like, sit down and I just write, like, while I can. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, it's definitely changed. Like, I don't get the free time to, like, sit inside my head, you know, for Mm -hmm. several hours a day anymore. Right. And um, I'm also, you know, I'm just doing a lot more, too, because, like, I'm keeping the house clean and, like, trying to keep things organized, doing laundry, like, you know, cooking food. Like, I'm doing, like, all these things on top of writing and trying to like promo my book mm-hmm. and make sure that the baby is engaged and like every time, you know, if she's awake, like she demands attention. So there's, you know, so I really only get like whenever she's down for a nap, so it's like time for me mm-hmm. or time to clean. Mm-hmm. Right, right. <laughs> so, so it's different. Which is um, kind of like, it's kind of like the same thing too though. Cause I don't know about you, but like, I can't actually think unless my shit is clean, like my area is clean. Yeah, that is how I am. I know I had some friends who were, like, telling me that once you have the kid, you'll care less about how messy things are. And I was like, I guess I understand that to a degree, but I still care. I'm just, I, like, still really care. I'm just, like, too tired to do anything about it. So, like, it right, still right. bothers me if it's messy, but then I'll just be like, oh, I just, like, cannot do this today. <laughs> right, 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 right. It's too much. So what have you been doing for, for promotion for the book? I'm always interested to hear about people's promotional journeys. Yeah, um, I'm trying to write essays. Like, I can't really travel a lot to do, like, an extensive book tour. So um, I've been trying to write a lot of essays and, you know, like, talk to people, do podcasts. Um and I'm planning this trip home to Denver to, like, see my parents and see my friends and my best friend with the baby. I'll be doing a book launch there in Denver. And then when I'm in Denver, um, I'm actually going to fly to New York City, like, overnight and do a launch to New York, in New York City and then come back home and then fly to Arkansas. Wow. That's yeah. intense. That's pretty intense. <laughs> I know, so we'll see how it goes, because I'll be traveling with the baby, and then in New York City, I'll be leaving her alone with my best friend to watch her for, like, the first time. Oh, wow. So, I'm like, <laughs> like can intense. I do this? Like, is she going to be okay? Yeah, I'm sure I'll be fine, you know. Right. But So, have you, you've, you've left her alone before, you know, just at home, right? Like, with... Yeah, like, a babysitter for, like, um... Like an hour or two, I think is like the longest we've been apart. And um, or if I like go to the gym or something, you know, my husband will obviously watch her. But um, I haven't left her alone for like a whole day before. Oh jeez. Yeah. Oh wow. So we'll see. we'll see how it goes. I'm sure it'll be fine. I mean, babies are adaptable. Yeah. You know, and it'll probably be good for both of us. I had this crazy dream the other night that. I was hanging out with this baby, but it was, and it was like an indestructible baby. 
And I was trying to figure out what my dream meant because the baby and I, like, I was like throwing the baby up into the air and it was like hitting a tree. And it was, you know, the game goat simulator where the goat, it was like the baby was like the goat. Right. And so I was just like, nothing could hurt the baby. So I was like throwing it through windows and stuff. And I was wondering, what is this about? And I think it's because I've always been really, really scared of dropping babies. I've never, Mm -hmm. whenever friends who've had kids or relatives who've had kids say, you know, do you want to hold this fragile thing? I 100% of the time have turned it down because I'm sort of afraid. But I think like I'm, I think that's my brain's way of saying like baby, like maybe don't throw babies through windows, but like you can hold them. Yeah. Yeah. And it's kind of a learning curve. I mean, even like the day that I, you know, like right after the night or whatever that I was in the hospital and the baby was in like the little, um, I don't know, there's like this little plastic tub thing that they roll next to the bed in the room Mm -hmm. with her in there. I was just like, I'm afraid to pick her up. Like, I'm so afraid I'm going to hurt her. Mm -hmm. She's so fragile. And when they're little, they're like really kind of like slouchy, you know. But as they grow, I mean, you it's a learning curve for like both of you. And then you'll suddenly be like, oh, this is like you'll get used to it really quick. Because I have not been around babies either. Yeah. Yeah. No, I've just never. I kind of always thought that I wouldn't have kids. If yeah. They'd, if somebody had asked me about, you know, five or six years ago, I would have said, no, nah, it's like not for me. But then something happens. It's weird. It really is, I think, biological. Yeah, that happened to me, too, because I definitely wasn't someone who grew up like fantasizing about wanting to be like a stay at home mom or like having kids. And, and I really like being alone a lot. So, so I think I was like really worried about um like whether I'd have time or anything, but yeah, it's really weird. Something in me also was just like, I just really want this, you know, and it was with the right person. And, um, so that was like something that we worked at, like together, we like reorganized our lives so that way we could kind of financially make everything work. How did you guys figure that out? I'm actually asking for personal advice, right? (laughs) Um, well, the big part of it was, so like we left Denver and we left Denver for a lot of reasons. And one of them was just because the rent was increasing so much. And I actually think if we had stayed there and we didn't leave, like I would, we would probably end up living like in my parents' basement or something because the rent was just so expensive and, um, our wages like just weren't increasing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so through, I think like some serendipity and like fate, maybe we, um, made some friends who like, lived in Northwest Arkansas and we just decided to move out here. Um, a place where it was like a lot cheaper to live. Yeah. Um, we had some semblance of a network and um, like we both found jobs. I found a part-time job. Uh, my husband found a, like a regular full-time job and um, we just worked and like saved money and we, we scrimped on like a lot of things. Like we gave up Netflix we gave up a lot of our subscription Damn. services. Um, we just like watched for a long time. We were just like watching stuff on YouTube, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and like we just like minimized everything that we could, and we paid off as much debt as we could too. Right. Like, right. like our cars aren't like new or anything. They're like pretty old, but we don't have loans on them anymore, mm-hmm. so that helped. Um, like we had one car for a really long time, so I was like walking to work a lot. Um, and so it was really just kind of about making those sacrifices and it wasn't like really easy at first, but now that things are things that we like kind of got through that period and things are more stable now. So for example, we don't have to eat like rice every day. Yeah. Um, and stuff like that, but it's just kind of like, yeah, like reorganizing that and being really realistic about the fact that, yeah, like we had to make some sacrifices and did you grow up like, did you grow up poor or? middle class or what kind of um my dad was in the military and when we were really young um he wasn't paid very much like my mom had like three jobs at one point um when we were living in Georgia and um it was hard at first but then when I became a teenager and my dad left the military he started finding jobs that did pay a lot more and was like moving us like out of lower class to more like middle class and upper middle class, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. um, 
like I don't remember personally like ever going hungry or anything like that but um, we definitely were always like really frugal about stuff that's how my mom was it was kind yeah. of we my, it was the same thing my dad was in the military and mom like took really really good care of us but I always thought I think about it in terms of food and I kind of think but I go to the grocery store sometimes and I'll look at the things that we used to eat and it was you know it was the three dollar tony's pizza yeah that i still remember as being delicious but it was definitely cardboard with like processed cheese and stuff Mm -hmm. so and then you know macaroni and cheese and a lot a lot of ramen and stuff yeah yeah so that's where i i started to and then i think about it uh one thing that was cool though is that we were we weren't broke obviously but um I always would get a comic comic books. That was one thing that mom would always let me have. So that's that's one thing that I'm grateful for, right? Cuz I was like, yeah. oh, I can I can actually I can read stuff, you know. So yeah. she was always like, you can do that. And then I I would beg for video games for years and she would just be like, no. No. I'm really? Not, not spending hundreds of dollars to get. Um, yeah, I never had video games growing up, which is why I don't play them now, I think, which I'm sort of thankful for. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, back in the day, I remember throwing many tantrums about not having a PlayStation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah, and we always went to Blockbuster Dude. or like Hollywood Video to rent stuff. <laughs> and like, Hollywood I don't know Video. if you remember this. So maybe because like, because my mom was working so much, I remember like she would buy the TV dinners that were for like kids. Mm-hmm. And um, I think, like, I remember them at the time being, like, super cheap. I have not looked to see, like, the price of TV dinners now, but they were, like, a dollar yeah. per meal and, like, eating a lot of Lunchables. And... Was it, like, the TV dinner that had, like, a penguin on it or something? Yeah, that yeah. one was, like, yeah, I had a penguin on it. The box was, like, blue. Yep. And, like, the if it was ever the, like, fried chicken one, it was always super gross because you were microwaving it, yeah, so it was never dude. crunchy. <laughs> yeah. But some of that stuff was good. Like, I to this day, I think that, you know, Craft macaroni and cheese is maybe the best food. I try not to eat it that much, obviously, because it's terrible for you. Mm-hmm. But if I make craft macaroni and cheese, and here's the weird thing. I don't use milk. I just use water. And weird. Yeah, and it gets really, like, when it gets really soupy, that, to me, is the best food that's ever been Dude, made. I'm, like, a soupy mac and cheese person, too. I, like, I don't eat, I don't eat pasta anymore, but I'll make, like, cauliflower mac and cheese. Yeah. And every time I make it, it just ends up becoming, like, a cauliflower, like, cheesy soup. Because I'm, like, yes. <laughs> Hot milk water with cheese and butter is good. It's good. It's poor kid food. It's because, you know, it's you got to get the nutrients from somewhere. Oh, I was reading the craziest thing recently. Um, I was reading about, like, random number generators. Have you like heard, have you heard of these things where they get like a quantum computer to have true random number generation? Mm-mm. So this is kind of crazy. Um, there's this anomalous thing that happens with quantum random number generators when large scale events happen. Um, they essentially analyzed their generators when uh, Trump won the election and all of the numbers started to, I guess, somehow line up with each other in some way that it was like a trillion in one chance that that the numbers would... The way it was described when I was reading it, because I super don't understand it, was that um, basically the numbers were like buoys on an ocean. And I guess when these big events happen, and a lot of people uh, in across the country are all focusing their intentions and like all really invested in one thing. What happens is like the numbers start to vibrate, I guess on the same frequency or something just, just for that like moment. Anyway, the idea of it, like the implication is that like human intention has an effect on the, the world, I guess. Oh yeah, totally. No, that's really awesome. I think that's true. I actually have been watching, um, like, I haven't been keeping up on, like, the news as much as I should be, but um, as far as, like, stuff is going with, like, AI and robotics and that kind of thing, and, like, with Facebook and, like, what Facebook's been doing and how all that's been happening, mm-hmm. like, the algorithm and the amount of data that's being collected and what it's being used for, yeah. I, I uh, feel like um, this idea of AI, like, the more 
sci-fi future version of AI that like everyone is afraid of, I feel like it already exists. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's hiding. Yeah. <laughs> like it's like doesn't like it doesn't want to be found yet. Like we're just like finding like these small pieces of it of like these algorithms that are like self-creating or whatever. Right. People studying it, becoming afraid of it. I think there's like a larger version of it that does kind of already exist that we don't know about. Just I've never yet. thought of it that way, but I love that. I love the idea of, you know, in movies where it'll be a scary man in a trench coat and then it's like the they live thing where, you know, somebody puts on the special glasses and they see that it's like a creepy skeleton person. It's mm-hmm. almost like that with AI. Like what you're saying is, you know, it's just revealing itself in really like subtle ways. It's, wait, why am I getting, you know, ads for Adidas tracksuits when I said the word Adidas earlier today? Well, yeah, like... Um, I can't remember why I read this, so, like, don't quote me, I guess, but I remember recently learning that, um, as far as, like, marketing algorithms and stuff like that goes, because you've heard of, like, how the AI, like, AI will create all these, uh, like, cell phone cases, and they're, like, really unfortunate, like, pulling from, like, weird stock photos, like, heroin needles, and, like, old mm. man putting on their pants and stuff like that. I didn't and see they, that. They, they like they like put them for set like for sale like on the internet. There's like these AI algorithms that are doing that. So I remember reading somewhere that um, based on your Wi-Fi router, uh, they can tell like the shape of your living room or wherever your Wi-Fi router is basically because you know it's working uh-huh. through these signals like bouncing off of items and so through that they can like map like where what your living room is like and better like advertise particular like furniture needs to you the other thing yeah the other thing that like people aren't considering is that um like there's just there's so much metadata that is being captured like it's not just like the public information or the information that like you're putting out there it's literally like these things that can they can analyze like a photo and determine okay, so maybe there's, like, three or four people in the photo or you're taking a photo of, like, someone's drinks or whatever. Mm-hmm. They can, like, determine whether or not there's, like, extra people in the room that don't even have social media, wow. you know, because they can, they can analyze it based on, like, you know, who you're hanging out with and I don't know. Anyway, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty crazy, like, the amount of information that has been collected and is being stored. I don't know. It's, it's a lot. Yeah. It's a to think about. I can't remember where I heard this, but I thought it was really well put. And the idea was back in the 80s, even the 90s, if we were to say, hey, you have to give up all of your personal information and we're going to put this spy machine in your pocket, but it takes really cool pictures and you can talk to your friends on it, we would probably be like, fuck that. No way. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't want that. But it happened so gradually that that's it's just so funny to me well it's gradual but it also seems fast too this seems to have really really kind of accelerated after 2012 when the apocalypse happened and mm-hmm. now we're all we're all living in like a like the lost tv show like at like afterlife you know we're all mm-hmm. on the island um yeah but uh but yeah no it's just it's it seems kind of hopeless and inescapable and sometimes it makes me when i'm driving through the desert to go to austin or you know, Santa Fe or something, I see little houses, you know, out in the middle of the Mm -hmm. desert and I get it, you know, Mm -hmm. I I understand. I I think I I could, I could do, I could live that way. Yeah, I know. I've been considering taking like a month long break Mm -hmm. from social media and like as much internet as I can after my reading in New York, maybe because it can, it's just kind of overwhelming. Are you still on Facebook? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm on Facebook. I definitely don't use it as much as I used to. I'm just using it right now to like post like book news and stuff. Right. I def I use Twitter a lot more. Twitter doesn't feel quite as toxic to me, but I think as long as I just don't scroll too much and I just use it to keep up with like my friends and their like writing stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's one of those things where I also have tried to teach myself to not scroll I had to just stop using Facebook altogether and it wasn't it wasn't really the Cambridge Analytica thing it was more just I could feel it you know as as just toxic to me right and mm-hmm. I I used to try to generalize it and say you know Facebook is this objectively bad thing like cigarettes and people shouldn't use it and I still kind of believe that but I've amended it because a lot of people are still deep in the throes of addiction and so they get really 
kind of testy when you tell them that what they're doing is maybe a little bit bad. But Mm -hmm. for me, I could just tell, like, whenever I would get on there, it it completely destroyed my ability to create anything, which... That's, yeah, that's how I feel about it. mm -hmm. It's like you go on there, you you just don't want to do anything after that. It, It kills you. Yeah, I think it's because of the dopamine response because it's so immediate. So it kind of like becomes this um, like living Skinner box. Mm. And so, um, you know, eventually like with anything that encourages like the flow of dopamine very rapidly and often, it just kind of like starts to like lose its effect. And then you just start to feel, yeah, like tired and cracked out. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But yeah, I guess I was thinking about that intention experiment in, in terms of what, of magic, which is something that I like to talk whenever about whenever people mm-hmm. come on the show who are into that kind of thing. Yeah. And so I just think it's kind of cool that they're starting to, and by them, I mean, scientists in lab coats they're starting to realize like holy shit wait a minute like there's maybe this materialist kind of worldview that we have is completely wrong and maybe intention does matter and maybe the future affects the present just like the past does i don't know i geek out on that shit um i don't know though i sometimes i question whether um science or even this culture will ever be like not materialist Mm -hmm. i don't know because capitalism depends so much on it and it's so large you know Mm -hmm. the entire world is like subjugated to this because it's so necessary for it to keep surviving right right yeah in the future there will just the way that capitalism will continue to exist will be through paying a bunch of people to focus their intentions on whatever it is that you want to have happen like that'll, mm-hmm. that'll be the work that we do. That'll be the labor. <laughs> It'll be like, let's go, let's all sit in a room and listen to Reiki chants. And, you know, is that the, the thing? Reiki? I always, I always forget whether it's that or Reishi. I don't know. I think Reiki is the, it's like Japanese energy transfer, right? I don't know right. much about that. Oh, it's the massage. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Got mm-hmm. it. Yeah. But that'll be, yeah, that'll be us in the future. We'll just, we won't have books or movies or anything. We'll just have, you know, pure intention that we pay people to flow into our energy streams. Mm-hmm. So how's the magazine going? It's good. Um, my co-editor, Catch Business, has been a rock star mm-hmm. for like the last, I mean, she's always been a rock star, but like just this whole process of um, I, me trying to like manage stuff, like while having a kid, she's really taken over and... Um, been really great like managing it kind of while I've taken somewhat of a step back just because it's been so hard trying to um stay on top of everything yeah yeah but um it's good we released issue four it's been pretty awesome um it's one of those things where I kind of want just for a little bit to maybe do one issue a year for a little bit and see what happens Mm -hmm. and then um focus a little bit more on publishing and putting more into like for our sad spell press you know and putting more into promoting the books and getting our books and bookstores more um and trying to get that set up a lot better it's just everything has to go kind of slow i don't want to go too fast and then like crash and burn you know oh no that's super super smart i i've been trying to it's hard to explain. I, do you ever get the feeling that pe- whenever you say that, you know, you're swamped or busy, like people are monitoring your like Twitter feed to see if you're fucking around or not? I get that impression sometimes. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Where they're like, this person isn't working hard. They're on Twitter. I'm like, yeah, but it's because I need breaks, right? Like I can't, I'm not constantly working on this shit. Yeah, no, I know. I wonder though, like, well, okay, so for me, yeah, I think, um, I get that too. I try to communicate though, like as much as possible as well. Like with, like with this last issue, it was supposed to come out in September. Mm-hmm. And obviously like that was like the month, like I think the issue was supposed to come out like a week after I was like supposed to give birth. And I was just like, this is not going to happen. We mm-hmm. have to kind of reschedule. And I felt bad because we did, we kept pushing it off, like to be announced, to be announced, to be announced. But I think as long as, yeah, you can maintain the like open communication like with your contributors and just like let them know what's happening Mm -hmm. that's really important because I had like I remember one of the first stories I ever got published um or got picked up to be published was supposed to be published in this literary magazine and then the editor she like uh she went dark for like two years but she just went like dark like she did not 
communicate with anyone. And I think she was just having like some personal trouble, but like the lack of communication was super hard. And I had this story tied up with her mm. for like two years or something like that. And then by the time um, it came around and she was going to publish it, I kind of was like, I just want to pull this story and like rewrite it. Mm-hmm. And then she said no. <laughs> so, what? I don't know. I didn't know that you could say no to that. I, th- I think I had signed a contract and she was supposed to pay me like, 10 bucks and a contributor copy, which I also, like, kind of never got. And I was just like, well, whatever. Maybe I'll just, like, rewrite the story one day mm-hmm. completely differently and, like, make it better. But right. that was definitely, like, tough because I was like, just tell us that you're having a hard time. Right. You know? Right. Yeah, it's tough, though. I mean, I think I think for me personally, I, I know that my uh, – I get really – I get scared that if I were to say something like that, you know, people would pull their shit out or, you mm-hmm. know – I, I have had a really tough time just getting comfortable with the fact that people, some people like don't like me, you know, and it's, mm. I know that sounds crazy, but I realized that after like 10 years here is that like, I, I really like it when people like me. So I've had, <laughs> I, I have, I have trouble saying things to people like, Hey, this is going to be late or, you know, this might not happen or, you know, I have to, or I have to reject your story. Like all that makes me super, super uncomfortable. But then I realized mm-hmm. that if I don't do it, the situation just gets more and more awkward. Yeah, no, totally. I know it's hard because I want everyone to like me too. Like I don't mm-hmm. want anyone to be upset with me. I think I have that like mentality. And especially when like editing for Hobart, I feel really bad because, you know, I'm reading through like 200 or 250 submissions uh, in a month sometimes like when I'm when I am editing for Hobart and um like I feel I feel bad sending out rejections and sometimes like yeah you have to send out form rejections because you just don't have the time right and knowing that my name is going to be attached to that I always wonder if someone will be like upset or whatever I think some people do get but, upset yeah but yeah. it's just one of the I mean I guess what, what happened what ended up happening with me was I just kind of I don't know. I had to just say fuck it eventually because people mm-hmm. got people get mad at me with the Broken River review. They would email me back and be like, because uh, apparently like some people th- thought that I took too long to even respond to the submissions. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, hey, uh, not going to take this one. And they're like, really? That's all I get? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, yeah. I mean, it's like, no, this is unacceptable. You took eight months to respond to my query. And, blah, blah, and I just was like, this is this is crazy. So there are people out there. I, I suddenly realized, like, oh shit, maybe starting a small press was the worst thing I could possibly <laughs> do because now I just have given people who otherwise wouldn't know who I am. Now they do know who they am and they hate me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I know it's hard. It's hard because, like, yeah, on one end as an editor, you want to be compassionate about it, but you also have limited time, and you do have to reject the stuff that is bad or that you don't like, you know. Mm-hmm. Um. And then, like, on the other hand, too, there are, I feel like there are some people who feel um, too entitled to particular, like, responses or, like, when people, when they do get rejected, they get very upset. And it's kind of like, I don't know, some people who are extremely successful have stories that are rejected over 20 to 30 times, sometimes even more. Mm-hmm. And you kind of just, in my, for me, like, you kind of just have to get over rejection. Sometimes it's arbitrary. Sometimes it's not. You know, sometimes you just have to try, like, a different market. Uh-huh. It just depends, you know, like I have stuff that gets rejected all the time. And I think that's one thing that I do love about publishing is that it has taught me that being rejected is like not a big deal mm-hmm. in terms of like the creative aspect, like of your writing. Yeah. You know, no, totally. Yeah, that was mm-hmm. something that that oddly enough, I never had had a problem with that. I never had a problem with other people rejecting me. You know what I mean? I was like, oh, okay, well, that makes sense, you know, I mean, story could be better, but, (laughs) so I guess that's, when I moved into publishing mode, I was just actually kind of surprised to see, um, maybe it's the wrong words for it, but how seriously a lot of people take it, and to me, I was always just like, I don't know, I think writing stories is fun, I don't, I don't get why this is all such a serious thing. Mm Mm-hmm. She stirs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <That's so cute. laughs> oh man, that's awesome! But, my God, uh, I know she is so cute. Last night, oh my God! So last night we were uh, listening to Slipknot. 
I think we were listening yeah. to Psychosocial, and she's finally getting to this point where she like recognizes rhythm, and dude, she was like partying her ass off, like she loved it. <laughs> and we listened to like she loves Mashuga like so yeah, much. Yeah. We listened to um, I think we listened to Sugar by System of a Down, and then there was like one other song. I think it was by Mudvayne. We were just like, yeah, she's just like was so into it and like loves like the rhythm of it it was like partying and i was like i think we have like a metal baby it's so hilarious to me that because we're the same age and we listen to pretty much the exact same music that Mm -hmm. it's like the it's just bizarre to me that kids like little babies are growing up listening to slipknot and corn you know what i mean because it's like i know i think about like when i was a kid and you know dad would listen to acdc or queen which is awesome but you know I was like, oh, man, this music is old. And now it's like, well, I think Slipknot came out in, what, like, 98? Mm-hmm. So it's like, I guess that's old. That's, like, 20 years old now. I know. I was just thinking that, too, that, like, um, how, like, you know how there's, like, this one song by Journey that, like, always plays, and whenever it starts playing, everyone, like, knows what it is. Uh-huh. I feel like that's what some of the, like, top hits of like a lot of the new metal bands are going to be like Mm -hmm. in the future for like the kids of our generation because yeah like we're going to expose them to it and then one day yeah they're going to be like this music is like so old but like for (laughs) us we were like it's like fucking rebellious and yeah Yeah. like fuck our parents they're like so mean to us and we were all like unwanted children or whatever you know like listening to like lincoln park and like all our frustrations and stuff and they're going to be like this stuff is just like old, but you know, they'll have like weird fond memories of it. That's cause that's how I feel. Yeah. About like yeah. ACDC and like Leonard Skinner and like all that stuff. It's really funny. And it's, it's interesting too, to just see how people are changing. And I, I had this, I, I listened to the new perfect circle record, which mm-hmm. I, I thought was actually pretty good. I didn't think it was that bad. Um, it's always a little disappointing. I mean, it's 14 years since their last one, but, um, but I was listening to it, and I had also seen Maynard on uh, Joe Rogan. And so I loved Tool, obviously, mm-hmm. growing up. And I loved, you know, how rebellious and angry it sounded. But mm-hmm. Maynard has turned into, like, not alt-right, but he's turned into, like, a grumpy old man who, like, doesn't like to say people's pronouns and complains about that shit, you know? And so, I like, haven't seen that episode. I should watch it. I always kind of thought Maynard was sort of like a pretentious jerk anyway, but <laughs> I haven't listened to the new Perfect Circle. And I did love Tool a lot. It's like, I love the music, but like not the artist, you know what uh-huh, I mean? Uh-huh, yeah. Well, I think I think the the thing that clicked in my brain was that, oh, this wasn't rebellious, really. It's just this guy just doesn't like people telling him what to do. So now that he's a rich dude who has like a vineyard, now he doesn't like it if people call him, you know, homophobic or out of touch. Like it's it's was never rebellion. It was just he just never really liked being bossed around. Yeah, I kind of wonder if some of like the there's just like megalomania in that when you just get like famous or rich enough where like your ego just takes absolute control then you're like i'm the king of fucking everything like no one can tell me what to do or whatever yeah yeah. and so like that's what happens is they just kind of get trapped like in themselves or something right well i think part of it too is that like when we were all younger we didn't have this saturation of um social media where everyone is like expressing a lot of their opinions and we didn't have the nuance of the artist like in their daily lives for example Mm -hmm. and so um when we're young and we're just listening to the music we get to kind of like project on the person what our assumptions are about how we feel about the music you know and what their music is saying and we don't know like the person i think now that um everything is so much about like ego building all the time online now we're just kind of like seeing all of that and then that's you know like that's kind of how like you end up like ruining the music for yourself when you're just like, I don't like this person anymore because I don't like what they think. And now I can't listen to their music without thinking about their like opinions or whatever or who they are as a person. But one thing that I really liked about uh, Animals Eat Each Other, and this is probably, uh, uh, I don't know if 
you probably know I'm going to say because we're talking about music, but Mm -hmm. normally in books when it's young people, I always feel like the music choices are kind of like who actually listened to that shit, you know? Because like young Mm -hmm. people driving around listening to fucking Tom Waits or, you know, Snow Patrol or whatever. I listened to Snow Patrol when I was younger. (laughs) (laughs) But But only that one song that like, I can't even remember it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, there's like Marilyn Manson, and I'm, I was like, hell yeah, you know? It just, mm-hmm. I feel like that's an underserved demographic of readers, and it's, I feel like new Metal, every time that I go on, I used to go on Facebook, and I used to put up like, and it would be different every time, my favorite new Metal albums, and I would see writers like twist themselves into knots trying to say that XYZ was not new Metal, you know, mm. I put like Deftones, White Pony, and they say Deftones is not new metal. I'm like, no, it absolutely, mm. it absolutely is new metal. But there was mm. like such a weird cultural embarrassment around that music, so I liked that it was kind of put on display. You know? Yeah, yeah, and I feel like it should happen more. I feel like mm. in literature, like I really would love one day to either write or put together like an anthology about like new metal or like some kind of like um historical record like mm-hmm. of like different bands and like its evolution and stuff i don't even know if that like really exists i think there was one really good article that circulated a while back um about it but i can't even remember mm-hmm. um my brain has been mush for like the last seven months no but, <laughs> um but like i feel like it's time you know to start talking about that you know because that's stuff i really want to see cultural commentary on bands like for example like kitty like i've been thinking about kitty a lot recently mm-hmm. and i really want to like like write something about that and like its significance you know right just to put that kind of stuff out in the world yeah no and i think that i think that stuff like that would be important too because what i think new metal did really well was well first of all it was like absurdly heavy it always just sounded really really big and mm-hmm. the lyrics were always sort of very straightforward almost and i think that's what made people get that's what makes people so kind of embarrassed of it in a way was that mm. there's not very much poetry to be found in new metal it's normally it's the limp biscuit shit it's you know i'm angry i want to break things or you know i'm upset at my parents but what that was able to do i think was it i don't know it just always felt really it felt like the most honest type of music to me because it seemed very like extremely unpretentious for the most part, you know? Yeah. I feel like some of, it kind of depends on like who you're listening to, but some of the lyrics were like kind of poetic too. Like Mm -hmm. they had some depth to them, but I think the stuff that got really popular too, I mean, it definitely had, they didn't have quite as much depth. Mm -hmm. Like I'm trying to think, like I know one great example is Korn's tenor two way. That's definitely not poetic. No, no, yeah. (laughs) Corn's not. Uh, System mm-hmm. of a Down was. Well, System of a Down was just really prophetic. I was listening to Toxicity in the gym the other day, and I was like, holy shit, they were right about, like, where they were in 2001 is where I am now, you know? Fucking abolish the entire prison system. I remember listening to that and being like, oh, that's that'll never happen. And mm-hmm. I still kind of think that probably won't happen. But And then they have all these songs about, you know, animism and how science is has failed everybody, you know, and you, the mm-hmm. spirit moving through everything. And I'm like, oh, shit, like, that's where I am now, you know? Um, yeah. So they were just ahead of the curve. I know. Well, I was actually just thinking, um, my husband just showed me this band, because we will, like, we'll sit down and we'll, like, watch music videos and kind of, like, talk about music a lot, mm-hmm. um, called Bad Brains, which, like, I had never heard of before. Uh-huh. But they are from... Like, I want to say maybe even the early or the late 80s mm-hmm. to, um, hang on. <laughs> she's like, I don't want to be in this carrier anymore. I don't like bad brains. Yeah. Well, no, if you, um, hang on. <laughs> if you listen to them, yeah, if you listen to them, you can hear uh, a lot of where I feel like corn got direct inspiration from them because they sound so similar and i feel like bad brains was just kind of like slightly ahead of their time Mm -hmm. it was really incredible i was shocked like i was like and it was really good too yeah um they were they were black too right so that probably yeah 
Right, yeah, like, I was thinking about that, too, like, how much music um, has come from African-American artists where people, like, don't even know, mm-hmm. and it was, they're, they're pretty good, so I had never known about them. It's funny that Korn came, like, took Bad Brains' sound as, like, you know what this is missing? A fucking bagpipe. We need we need to put bagpipe in this. Yeah, essentially that's like what they did was like they took it and then just put bagpipes. <laughs> I so know. I guess uh, just talk about the book a little bit. How how's it how's it been doing? It came out what uh, a month ago now. Yeah, it came out um, April third, and it's been doing pretty good. Um, my publisher said that it went through its first printing like before it even came out. Oh, wow. Nice. Yeah. So, but I think a lot of those are like, book, you know, they're sitting on like bookstore shelves and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, that's, <laughs> so that's been pretty awesome <laughs> so far. Um, a lot of people seem to really like it. Um, you know, I haven't seen anything negative. I probably just won't read bad reviews, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. but yeah, it's been pretty good. And, um, it's been interesting just because. Um, I'm kind of just like ready to move on to the next book right, and start right, right. writing again. Yeah. What's the next one? What are you working on? Um, I it's I don't want to talk about the project yet just because I feel like when you talk about it, kind of like, you know. Right, right, right. It's the energy behind it, but sure. Um, it's been good. I've been working on a few short stories and stuff too, just trying to. Yeah, like get some stuff out there. Yeah, it almost feels like you have to kind of like cleanse your palate after having a book come out. Like, with short stories and stuff like that, you have to sort of just, like, I don't know, release that energy somehow. Try to, like, take what I learned, like, from the last book, too, and, like, synthesize it, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, I liked, I'm, I'm really into one of the things that I, I, I enjoy about books recently is that people are finally hopping on the, like, keeping... That was awesome. I don't. I just want to keep all this. But uh, you know, that's the sound that she makes when she like wants to be moved. When she's like, I don't like being in this position. Put that, me somewhere. Did she blow a raspberry? Was that? What it was? Yeah, yeah. I started doing that to her when she was like a couple months old. So uh, then she started doing it, and now that's like one of her main modes of communication. That's like her go-to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, that's that's awesome. That is yeah. so cool. How else? Did, so it's it's obviously baby cries, raspberries. You should just have her, you know, speak in sound effects at first, like rerun. But yeah, no, I like that. I like the fact that people are hopping on the short book train too. Like I, I love the being able to read a book in just an hour. I don't really understand people who can do, uh, you know, books that are three, four hundred pages long. It just seems uh, seems like too much work to me. <laughs> no, I think long books have their place. I do think that the short novel is probably gonna like uh, come up because our attention spans are like shorter and all mm-hmm. of that. But I kind of like the discipline it takes in finishing a really long book, like uh, a little life. I think that was like six hundred pages or something. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. yeah and um, like I was like. By the end, I was, like, ready to be finished, but then I was so proud of myself, like, when I finally did finish it, you know? Sure, sure. yeah, yeah. It's, uh, yeah, no, I've actually, I've learned how to appreciate long books from listening to audiobooks, because mm-hmm. it's easy and I can do it kind of passively, and I mm-hmm. realized, like, oh, shit, you know, I didn't even think about this, but some books really do take a couple hundred pages to get going, as weird as mm-hmm. that sounds, Um and then, like, I, I think, oh, well, they should, you know, they should work on that. They should make it more gripping and engaging from the very beginning. But I do like the idea that maybe it's something that you kind of have to sit with and allow mm-hmm. it to develop, which is just kind of, I guess, really foreign to uh, that quick hit of dopamine culture. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. 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 Um, I actually am almost finished with the new Tao Lin book, which I read way faster than I thought that I would. I think it's like 300 something pages, but mm-hmm. I was like two thirds done with it within like 24 hours. Yeah. Um, and that book is, um, it's really good. He has a chapter on, um, the CIA and like why psychedelics are illegal. Mm-hmm. That is, uh, really fascinating. Oh, cool. I haven't gotten to that part yet, but it was, uh, if I, it was, it's because of uh, Nixon, right? Nixon basically wanted to stop the 
Vietnam War protests. Yeah, I think that's part of it. Basically, this idea that um, psychedelics can encourage more independent revolutionary thought, and they were trying to squash that, even though they found um, through their various uh, unethical and like illegal experiments of people being dosed with LSD, that there were really no ill effects. It's still classified as a schedule one drug, which is like right up there with, you know, um, like heroin and crack cocaine and stuff. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. and that like the experiments that they did on people were just insane because the CIA basically it's so funny like the CIA is responsible for obviously disseminating crack in black neighbor neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. It's also kind of responsible for the dissemination of LSD because they were really interested in uh, mind control, right? Yeah, like in the fifties, I think maybe the forties, like after World War Two ended and the Cold War started getting going. Um, I think it was. U.S. soldiers who were captured in Korea during the Korean War, uh, mm-hmm. they were basically made to uh, kind of give these confessions on on TV. Um, and mm-hmm. they were saying things like, you know, I renounced the U.S. government. And they would be let go and they'd be let, they'd be taken home and they were clearly hypnotized. Mm-hmm. So that kind of like set the CIA off. They were like, oh, shit. Like there's mind control. We have to figure out what it is. And I think LSD was a part of that. Like they, yeah. they were basically trying to figure out if they could get like a truth serum or whatever. Yeah. And <laughs> I, I know. I think the thing that's most, I mean, it's not really, okay. So it's not shocking in the sense that like, I already knew that the U S government was uh, kind of awful, but right. what's crazy is to just understand that, um, even after World War II, when the world collectively decided that experimenting on humans was unethical, the United States government was still participating in this, um, you know, all the way up until the late 70s, maybe even the early 80s. And, you know, like, it's just, uh, it's kind of harrowing when you really stop and think about it, especially when you consider the actions of things like Facebook, when Facebook ran that one um, depression experiment a couple years back. Yeah, You know, like... I don't know. It's just kind of, um, it's kind of harrowing. Yeah. Cause it keeps going. And I mean, even if you think like our whole past is just so fucked up. Cause if you think about it, even in terms of something like operation paperclip, which was a real, uh, the CIA didn't exist at the time. I think it was the OSS. Uh, anyway, there was mm-hmm. a operation to bring Nazi scientists into America, uh, to like kind of help them escape persecution because we oh, wanted their, yeah, we wanted their rocket technology, basically, because um, mm-hmm. the, the Nazis had, had created, like, the V2 rocket, and we wanted that. So we basically were like, <laughs> we basically were like, hey, uh, the whole, like, murdering Jews thing, we can overlook that. Uh, you can come work for us. If you give us technology. Oh, that's very interesting when you consider, like, the whole um, uh, Roswell mm-hmm. incident. Yeah. Yeah. Like we started magically gaining all of this like science and technology right. after World War II. Yeah, that makes sense. And that's that's some people think I think that, that it all happened in 1947. 1947 was when the CIA was created. It's when the Roswell crash happened. And if I remember correctly, that's also when Jack Parsons and L. Ron Hubbard opened up a hole in space time in the Nevada desert that might have all been at the exact same time. Because I think they were doing. Because Jack Parsons was like a rocket. You, you you know about him, right? No, I don't know about this. All I know is that L. Ron Hubbard started Scientology. <laughs> oh well, okay. So Jack Parsons was essentially a magician who was also a rocket scientist, and he was like a super genius. And he kind of got involved with uh, Aleister Crowley because at that this time Crowley was like kind of a spy. You know, during World War Two, he he did a lot of spy stuff. Um, oh, okay. So anyway, so Jack Parsons was, he was this really kind of cool, actually, like charismatic dude, but he was doing, um, he thought that he was the Antichrist. So he basically did this ritual with L. Ron Hubbard, uh, like the Babylon summoning or something like that. And it was to bring uh, like the whore of Babylon into existence or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's cool about it is when he did, after he did the ritual, he came back to his apartment and there was an actual uh, woman standing on his doorstep who like became involved in the whole thing. Um, anyway, I kind of got off on a tangent. I can't remember. <laughs> like, I'm like, I don't know anything about this. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's just so, like, like it, there's so much esotericism and occult shit in our, 
in our government, you know? Yeah. Um, and all these kind of characters are intertwined. Like Charles Manson is another one, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, he kind of grew up institutionalized and went from, you know, holding facility to holding facility and was experimented on by the CIA uh, up until he was kind of let out. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, I could just ramble about this for days. Conspiracy oh, yeah. stuff. <laughs> yeah, I don't know anything. I actually don't know much about Charles Manson either. Mm-hmm. You um, know, I should yeah. read up a little bit more about that. But I just I read this book called Sinister Forces. It's this big three-volume set about the role of occultism in American politics. And it yeah. has it has Charles Manson as kind of the central figure, um, because he's he grew up in this place Ashland, uh, Kentucky, mm-hmm. which is home to like the most I think Indian burial mounds in the country, mm-hmm. and so basically the book has like feels that he was kind of like this manifestation of like an ancient evil or an ancient curse, right? And that he was sort of built in a lab by the CIA. Um, which was kind of true, you know. I mean, they did put him in prison for most of his life. Is that like the MK Ultra program yes. thing? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's MK Ultra, and uh, yeah, at the time that he was doing it, it was definitely MK Ultra. But uh, it's really like you have to check out this book because it's kind of fascinating how he kind of like weaves in most people from the uh, that. It's mostly based around the the twentieth century. Like how all yeah. these characters kind of like know each other and interact yeah. with each other, but uh, but yeah, MK Ultra was some crazy shit. Yeah, and, and that's what I think. That's what I think is so interesting about today and Facebook and stuff like that is like th- it's clear that our government has been doing this forever, and I just yeah. think it's hilarious that people think that they stopped all of a sudden. It's like oh, they don't do that anymore. Yeah. Well, I wonder if it's just, it's not necessarily that, but that like uh, other issues have eclipsed it and seemed larger in that respect too, you know? It's like, I feel like maybe you only have so much brain space for the traumatic things happening to our society. Yeah, yeah. You know, so it's kind of like you gotta, people will, um, you know, prioritize like what is probably gonna, I don't want to say benefit, but what is most focused on for their, like, own survival, probably. Right. You know? Right. It's really tough. I also feel like maybe um, social media or, or you know, TV, modern media, whatever, has kind of, like, reduced our ability to think critically in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Like, I think there are people who do think critically, but then I think with the tools that we have now, that's just kind of, like... Um, like reducing that in a way. I don't know. I definitely feel kind of brain dead if I spend too much time on Facebook or social media or anything like that. Right. You know. Right. So. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm sure it is a total element of control, right? That's mm-hmm. that's what it's been. I think I feel like all of these things are they're they're tested in government labs first. You know, like the iPhone mm-hmm. was a. It's made from DARPA technology, you know, and mm-hmm. Facebook, whether or not, uh, I don't even know if Mark Zuckerberg knows what it's being used for at this point. No, know? I don't think that he knows like what he created. And I think that's really the big thing. I watched only like a little, little bit of like the congressional hearing, which I really want to watch more of and not seeing him respond. I definitely feel like he just, he doesn't even really know necessarily like what it's doing. Right, right. You know? Yeah. Which sucks because it's like, you kind of feel bad for the guy in a way, but then you kind of also, I kind of don't because he has billions and billions of dollars, but he does kind of just look like, he has his little booster seat, you know? (laughs) Oh, yeah. He's like a baby. Yeah, I've never seen that. (laughs) (laughs) He's like a, a pale fish baby who created a technology to, you know, rate the hotness of chicks. And now it's a government apparatus that's spying on the entire population. It's like, whoops. I know, and it basically has this, like, strange stranglehold on how democracy works or whether or not it even can anymore. Do you, do you think that the that there was, like, Russian hacking that actually had an effect on the election? Um, I don't know. I mean, it depends on how you define Russian hacking. Yeah. You know, I, I do feel like there are, that there are interference in elections, but I think that happens all over the world. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I know that the U.S. has... Um, 
like interfered, not necessarily even just the elections of leaders that favor the West better, but they, they actually like depose of existing leaders through military mm-hmm. means. Yep. You know, it just I think that that's always going to happen. Yeah. With yeah. governments. And I and I honestly the reason why I can't say like with the Russian hacking is I just have not been following that news like since I don't know. Yeah, like the last like year has been kind of hard for me to keep up with that kind of stuff. Right. It's probably healthier too to just not. But I like what you said about how it's you know it's kind of hard to be upset about our election getting messed with because yeah, I mean, literally just a few years ago, we, you know, we took care of Gaddafi in Libya, you know, and mm-hmm. before that, you know, all of South America has had a dictator, like you said, deposed and then replaced with somebody yeah. who's better for us, you know? Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's kind of hard. It's like, oh yeah, some, some Russian hackers made memes and they really, really took over our democracy. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Well, I mean like, yeah, like, and we can be mad. I think we can be mad about interference, but I also, I, I just don't think anything that leads to war is it's bad. Yeah. You know? Yeah. is the right answer. Like I just like war is bad. Like it's just not good. And it's been surprising. Um, even if there has been like collusion and interference, it's been surprising to see, uh, how hungry some of, uh, the government leaders are, um, to go to war. Right. And that's really worrisome. It I don't is. Know. Yeah. And it's, you know, what's even worry more worrisome to me is that you see, you expect it from people on the right, you know, that they're like, yeah. I used to work with this guy when I moved furniture and he was kind of a hillbilly type dude. And he was like, man, if I was president, I would just, I would just bomb the middle East. I would just bomb the whole thing. And I was yeah. like, okay, well that's, that's good that you're not in power. Um, but I guess yeah. what's kind of upsetting is like you see it from the left now too, where it's like something yeah. something must be done about Russia, and it's like no, no, nothing has to be done about Russia. Like they have bombs. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's kind of yeah. Like that's kind of the thing that scares me about it is yeah. Like growing up, it was always like yeah, fuck Bush because like he's so war hungry and all mm-hmm. this stuff. And um, the the thing that's been most shocking to me is seeing those um on the liberal side of things who are more war hungry too. Like that has been really crazy mm-hmm. to me. Right. Um, and it is, Yeah. I mean, I guess I'm trying to like think historically, I mean, even with Obama uh, being in office um, and how he continued the drone program and all that, we really shouldn't be surprised mm-hmm. that it's kind of been happening over the last decade, but right. I don't know. I guess really the problem is just, capitalism yeah. <laughs> and these power structures trying to maintain power so they can continue to make money right right and i was you know i was talking to a friend of mine about this recently because i was pissed off about jeff bezos having 25 bathrooms and uh, my friend is super super he's like a business guy he's successful and has made a bunch of money and he was mm-hmm. like well to be honest if that was me like i'd probably have the 25 bathrooms too so we we got to kind of talking about it and the point that i was trying to make to him is that it's not bad to make a bunch of money. It's just any one system I think is fine. But I have this thing where I think like, you know, where it would be like, come on, like, just come on. You know, with capitalism, it's like, yeah, sure, go make money and stuff. But, you know, maybe $120 billion is too much for one person to have, right? Yeah, and I think um, in Japan, maybe, um, this may not be true anymore, but I think at one point, if you made over like $200,000 a year or something, you were taxed at like 90%. Mm. Because like literally nobody needs more than $200,000 a year. And like, I don't know, that's how I feel. Like, I don't necessarily think money per se is bad, but I think it's the accumulation of wealth over time and not giving back that is so damaging. Like that whole thing, like what Jeff Bezos makes like a hundred thousand dollars a minute. Yeah. You know, like, come on, like that's really not like at this point, it's like not even real. Like it's not even real money anymore. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like it's crazy. Like there's not even, I don't even think like the human brain can conceptually like understand in real life, like how much money that actually is. Even if you were looking at like the stacks of it. (laughs) Right, (laughs) right. Exactly. Yeah. It would be hard to take in. I don't think you'd be able to see it all at once, but um, yeah. And then you have people who like, with people like Elon Musk, they're like, well, at least they're, 
using their money to do all these projects. And I'm like, I don't give a fuck if he goes to Mars. Like, we have bridges that are crumbling, you know? Like, yeah. my, my mom works as a teacher in Oklahoma, and, you know, basically each student, the, the amount of money the state spends on each student each month or each year is $70, like $70, $70 a year. For per year? Oh, my per God. Per year. And, I mean, like, in Virginia, where my sister teaches, it's 10000 per student per year. So, like, Oklahoma's, like, really, really bad. Um, yeah. But it's, like, with all this money and stuff, why... I don't care about, you know, making cool tunnels underneath the United States where we can, you know, zip from one place to another. We have airplanes, we have cars. I think that's fine. I just don't feel like we need to accelerate technology anymore. It's like, take that money and do something good, you know? Mm -hmm. Give give everybody 500 bucks, you know? Yeah, rehabilitate infrastructure. Give us all a universal basic income. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Build like a post-scarcity society. (laughs) It's like, and they could do that. Like, they in their hands, they have the power to, to like, actually create that thing. And it's like, yeah. no, I'm making a rocket into outer space. Yeah. It's like, okay, dude, whatever. I know. Well, one thing, there is one thing um, that is really, that I that was really interesting that I've just been thinking about recently. Um, they have been experimenting on making lab-grown meat. And, like, at first, when I read about it, I was like, oh, that seems kind of, like, weird and disgusting. And it goes along with, like, you know, us eating genetically modified foods. Like, how healthy is that? Right. But then, on the other hand, like, one thing that I'm extremely passionate about is the abolition of industrial agriculture. Like, I just Mm -hmm. don't Mm -hmm. think that it's uh, right for, um, like, the environment or, like, the actual plants. Like, uh, how we're depleting the soil, how it treats animals. Like, all that is, like, quite disgusting. And... Um, I'm not a vegan or a vegetarian. Um, I do eat meat, but if I could eat meat and have it be um, harmless, you know, then mm-hmm. absolutely I would do that. Like I, I mean, I specifically, like I, I just can't live off of carbs because I have an endocrine disorder, so it is really hard for me to be vegan. But, um, like if I, if I could survive on like actual, like ethical me like I would probably do that yeah. but it is but it also and I feel like that kind of can contribute to this idea that like that's where we should be putting our money into these places where we can create the stuff that actually like benefits the earth and society in some way right right that makes a lot of sense yeah because I mean I I think that with the problem that I would have with genetically modified meat uh besides what you said about GMOs and stuff is that I feel like you're kind of um you can you kind of get uh how do I say this without sounding like a crazy person? I don't know if you can. You kind of get a little bit of like the soul of the animal in the meat, right? Which is why it's like not, to my mind, it's really, really not good to eat factory farmed meat as as little as possible because it's like, yeah. it's kind of tainted with like fear and terror, you know? Yeah. Um, but like really good, healthy meat, I think is good. So I don't really even know what what would be happening with like a lump of beef that was never attached to a creature you know yeah it's very yeah, i know it is it's kind of like disconcerting and weird and it is really interesting mm-hmm. so but, i don't know yeah no i love what you're saying because like i've been thinking about this too about sometime in the future i don't know when but i want to just like because i think decentralization and farming is super super important mm-hmm. like eventually it's my goal and i don't have a green thumb and i'm not very good at any of this but would be to have an actual like badass garden in my backyard and have chickens and stuff and like eat their eggs and eat the plants that are grown out of my own dirt. Like that to me mm-hmm. just seems cool because we took a left turn somewhere, you know, with like how fast we could get stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and now it's like, none of this is good. I don't think like sometimes I think about how many like chickens and cows have to die like every single day and it kind Mm -hmm. of like boggles the mind in the same way that the 120 billion dollars does you know Mm -hmm. it's just like the 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 size of the slaughter but i don't think about it that much because i also eat meat so that's one of those things that i compartmentalize yeah it's the amount of i know i compartmentalize it sometimes too sometimes you you don't have a choice though and that's like I feel like that's one of the benefits of that privilege is when like you can choose to make dietary choices that benefit you or not. Cause a lot of people don't have a choice mm-hmm. too. And like, that's a big part of it as well. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's something that always, 
that I hadn't thought about before until Rios kind of pointed it out to me. And it's like, it's really kind of classic, like vegan and vegetarian stuff. It can be kind of a classist thing if, you, if you're getting judgy with it, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. I know, no, I know. Yeah. I know some <laughs> who aren't judgy at all who just, you know, do their thing and like, I don't give a shit what other people do. So. Yeah. Like when the individual chooses to do it for themselves, like, yeah, that's totally fine. I definitely don't like when people mandate a particular way of life saying that it's like the best for everyone because um it is it is really classic some people just don't have access or the money like Mm -hmm. it it takes a lot of money to eat really well it takes a lot of money to eat um food that is free of pesticides or Mm -hmm. free of um plastics or or anything you know a lot of people don't even live in an environment where they have fresh vegetables available to them or or like soil that they can grow Mm -hmm. their own vegetables in it's so tough yeah, it's called, that's a food desert, right? Yeah. Yeah, so it's like, hey, check your privilege, guys, right? Yeah. Well, that's cool. Well, hey, I've kept you for an hour and 15 minutes, so thank you <laughs> for your time. I always yeah, enjoy no talking. That, that was cool. We we barely talked about the book, but hey, it's cool. I'll talk about it's it cool. in the intro. I'll be like, hey, there's this book, <laughs> and you should read it. So, uh, so yeah, thanks so much for your time. Yeah, man. Thanks for listening. That was L. Nash, the author of Animals Eat Each Other. Tune in next week. We're going to have B.R. Yeager, who is the author of Amygdalatropolis. We're going to talk 4chan, shitposting, weird online communities, and subversive literature. For those of you who like your literature to be subversive, which I do, goddammit. Hope your day is going swell. Holler at me. My Twitter is at BRBJDO. My Instagram is the same, but it's much less interesting because it's just pictures of my dog. Actually, if given the choice between having to listen to me ramble about current events or look at pictures of my dog, you might just go to the Instagram. Next week, next Monday, BR Jaeger, episode 110 of the JDO show. Goodbye.